Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Wednesday, February 1st. Amanda Borchel-Dan here with our legal correspondent, Jeremy Sharon, and investigative reporter, Ina Lazareva. Hello to you both. Hello. Good morning, Amanda. Really a pleasure. We have a very interesting program for you guys today that I'll break into two halves. In light of the much-talked-about judicial reform, Jeremy will explore instances in which the courts have struck down or amended part of a law. Very interesting. Ina is here to discuss her deep investigation into the shady world of foreign workers' broker fees, which is a multi-million dollar scandal. But first, a word from our sponsor. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. And we're back. Jeremy, your article on eight massive court interventions is really fascinating, and it's now on the site. So let's first focus on a case in which the court broadened legislation. Let me give a little background. In February 2005, the Knesset passed the disengagement law, which spurred a storm of legal petitions on behalf of the Gush Katif settlers. The court, for the most part, rejected their petitions, but in the end broadened eligibility for the compensation offered by the state. So why is this case significant? So I cited this case because I think it's very important to illustrate the the broad argument in Israel about the court. So on the right wing, the criticism is that the, the High Court of Justice is liberal, it's left-wing, and its interventions are not as the the left-wing and liberals claim uh, about upholding minority rights, but rather about advancing the that left-wing liberal political position, despite the fact that often the left-wing liberals don't win elections. So here we have the disengagement law, which was designed to uh, enact Israel's uh, evacuation of the settlements in Gaza, what which were called Gush Katif, and and evacuate those eight thousand people from from the territory. Now, the petitions filed against the the law were that you're violating these people's property rights. They've built homes there, literally out of nothing, and they have a right to to remain there, uh, regardless of whatever the government seeks to do with with that private property. And what happened was eventually the court decided that. Actually, the court decided that this was a violation of those settlers' property rights, but that it was proportionate to the the aims of the government, and therefore the court upheld the government's uh, law or upheld the law to evacuate the settlers. 
And in fact, the court offered more compensation that uh, had been in the bill and even to people under age 21, which I thought was really interesting reading in your piece. Now, let's talk about a case where in the early teens here in Israel, there was obviously a lot of talk in the country about the wave of asylum seekers and migrants. And the Knesset at that point passed in an amendment to a 1954 anti-infiltration law that allowed the state to detain asylum seekers for a minimum of three years. So in this case, the high court obviously ruled in favor of the minority. And what was the basis of its annulment of this amendment? Sure. This is a, this is a classic case which the left and, and the liberals would uphold as a situation where the court was critical in protecting uh, minority rights. And so in this case, we're talking about there was about some 60,000 asylum seekers and migrants from, from African countries, primarily Eritrea and Sudan, who arrived in the mid-2000s to 2012. And the government passed a law in 2012, as you said, allowing for them to be detained for up to three years. And, and for some, including those from Sudan, which was then an enemy country, indefinitely, in fact. So the court ruled that this was unconstitutional as far as Israel's uh, basic laws, which are quasi-constitutional, uh, stipulate. Specifically, they based their ruling on the basic law for human uh, liberty and dignity, uh, which says the liberty of a human being shall not be taken or restricted. And so using that basic law, they found that this government law uh, was unconstitutional. And the government then tried to pass another two uh, pieces of legislation subsequently after 2012, which were both uh, uh, amended by the court for that infringement of the liberty of of those asylum seekers and, and migrants. And this is really a case of a very fundamental right being infringed by the legislature because the right to due process not to be detained indefinitely without trial or without, as I said, due process is really a very ancient right going back hundreds of years, even, you know, back to the 13th century almost. So as I said, the left, the left wing and the liberals hold this up as a, a situation where a vulnerable group of people would have had their rights violated in a, in a very fundamental manner had it not been for the intervention here of the High Court. Okay, and the final case that we're going to discuss is uh, nicely counterintuitive. People always talk about the court as being secular, etc., etc. And in 2014, in Kfar the town, which is under 6,000 residents and it's near the Lebanon border, the town wanted to build a mikveh. But initially, it was denied public funding for this uh, ritual bath. So why did the court compel the municipality to construct a ritual bath in Kfar Vradim? Okay, so as you said, this is this is really interesting because here you're protecting the rights of religious people and the, the current government, which is seeking to restrict the ability of the court to intervene in government decisions. Uh, a, a large part of that government is made up of the ultra-Orthodox and, and parties representing religious Jews. But here the court was protecting the rights of those religious Jews. And more, moreover, it was doing so on not against uh, the basis of, of the basic laws, but rather on a test of reasonableness, saying that the decision wasn't reasonable and actually that test of reasonableness is something which the government is also seeking to prevent the court from from using in its decisions. So what happened? Uh, a mikvah, just to, to recap, a mikvah is very important for religious Jews. According to Jewish law, uh, religious Jews can't have marital relations for a certain number of days after a woman's uh, period finishes until you immerse in this mikvah in a religious bath. And 
So the the fact that the town of Kfar didn't have a mikvah made religious life for the religious community there very difficult. They had to go to other towns close by, which is, you know, inconvenient and on Shabbat and Jewish holidays, not even possible. So the, the, the town uh, actually originally, uh, the, the religious community of the town filed uh, a petition with the uh, Haifa district court saying we want this mikvah in the, in the town and municipal authorities refusing us. And that eventually made its way to to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court looked at the looked at the criteria established by Kfav Radim for prioritizing the public buildings it wants to construct. And based on those criteria, the town said that building a mikvah was at the very bottom of a list of about 17 different public buildings. So the court looked at the criteria which the municipal authority had established and said, based on the test of reasonableness, not all considerations would be taken into into account, especially the religious rights of these religious community in the town, including you know the fact that they're taxpayers as well. And not only that, not all considerations had to be taken into account. Some considerations had, be, had perhaps been given too much weight or incorrect weight. For instance, one of those considerations, one of the criteria of the municipal authority, was to preserving the character of the town. Now, the character of the town is predominantly secular, and. Uh, it, it appeared that the Supreme Court was alluding to the fact that you know, that might not be a, a criteria which you should put especially a, a good amount of uh, weight on, especially bearing in mind the religious rights of, of the religious community. And in that case, Justice uh, the Supreme Court Justice Fogelman wrote an inseparable part of a religious woman's relig- religious ritual and the expression of her identity and customs is substantively related to the right to the free exercise of religion and religious practice and her ability to, you know, to go to a mikra and have access to that facility. So here, as I said, this is an instance of the court upholding the rights, in this case, of, of a minority, or a religious minority, and that's a counterweight to some of the claims from the right wing that the court is, as you said, uh, indelibly uh, left-wing and, and secular. Jeremy, thank you so much for that. We'll go to a short break. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. Now, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll privilege to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. And we're back. Ina. Thank you again so much for joining us today. And as you and I both know, we're in the process of giving your most recent investigation a fine polish ahead of publication, which we hope will happen in the coming days. Now, briefly, tell us what you were attempting to find out when you began your voyage into this world of illegal broker fees for foreign workers. Um, Well, um, 
the story came about as um, as a result of numerous um, accounts that uh, myself and my colleagues have heard about about foreign workers, foreign carers in Israel, who come here to um, uh, from uh, developing countries to try and earn uh, some money as carers for elderly people in Israel. Reports that they've been asked to pay thousands, tens of thousands of shekels just to arrive here, even before they start working. So this is what prompted this investigation. And that's what I've been looking at into for the past uh, several weeks. Now, in your piece, you rightly note that this is something that every family almost in Israel has experience with. It could be your elderly grandparents and in their house resides this uh, foreign caregiver from India, from the Philippines, most likely. And I think so few know about this extortion, essentially, that's happening in order for these workers to get a visa. So tell us about this really extortative process that they must go through. Uh, that's right. Well, uh, this affects about more than 70,000 foreign care workers who are currently in Israel. So there's a lot of people from, as you say, numerous countries, uh, the Philippines, India, Uzbekistan, even places like Ukraine, Moldova, and many other countries. And um, a Supreme Court judge, in fact, described this practice that it could be perceived as actually something as modern slavery or as trafficking human beings for labor purposes. It's that serious. And yet, in the three decades that this has been going on in Israel, not a single criminal charge has been pressed against anyone who's been charging these fees. Currently, uh, care workers from India, uh, for instance, are paying are being asked to pay as much as $25,000 before they even set foot in Israel, before they even begin their employment. And um, as we know, a uh, payment for, for this kind of work is very close to the minimal wage in Israel. So it's, um, it's uh, highly difficult. It takes people years to pay this, uh, this money off. It also binds them to their employer. So um, e- even if they may be having a terrible time or having some problems in, in the workplace, Yes, some could complain, but others are so desperate to give back the money to their to their families or to the people who, who lent it to them that they would be willing to put up with all sorts of conditions which would be violating their, their rights. But there are some activists from within the communities that have stepped up and you speak with two of them. Let's talk about first the woman that you call the Iron Lady. Who is this woman? Uh, yes, her name is uh, Jean Trapal. She's a former caregiver from the Philippines. She came here um, more than 10 years ago. And now, in fact, she's back in the Philippines. And the reason why I'm interviewing her is, first of all, because she's uh, she's really a, a pioneer amongst the migrant care worker community in speaking out about this. And secondly, uh, because she's back home, she's back in the Philippines, which means that she's safe from um, in, in being able to speak out about this. Most of the other people I've spoken to are absolutely terrified of talking about this, even off the record, even anonymously. They say, I'm so scared I'm going to be deported back home. This is something that's detrimental. Everyone has to do this. They sort of accept it as a as a status quo. And um, Jean decided to speak out. Um, she's a, a religious woman. She's a pastor. And she kept hearing about these, uh, these cases in her community. And she found this absolutely outrageous and what is crucial was that she had the backing of her Israeli family with for whom she was working, who were also lawyers, lawyers themselves. They put up um, security cameras uh, in her work in the flat where she worked because she started receiving death threats from people saying, if you speak out about this, you will pay. So she's a really rare example of, of talking out. And the other person, I, uh, the other activist is, uh, is an Indian uh, caregiver 
who's also been here for many, many years. He's talking to me on condition of anonymity because he's still here. And he said, if, if I'm found out, I will have many, many problems. Now, as I was reading your piece, there are so many twists and turns to the plot, and it's very complicated. But there was one silver lining that actually turned to dust, which is the bilateral agreements. And there was a bilateral agreement signed with the Philippines, and everything should be fine. And yet, it's still going on. Why is this happening? Yeah, this is uh, this is the really sad part of the story, because everyone, uh, including NGOs, including uh, activists, say, perhaps rightfully, that bilateral agreements are the solution to this. This is the way forward. Why? Because bilateral agreements eliminate this whole murky private agency process and make the make the hiring of foreign care workers a matter that is government to government. So, uh, and the Israeli government actually devised a brilliant system, in theory, that keeps the identity of the caregiver anonymous until the very last moment when uh, when the person uh, looking for the caregiver um, is uh, given several options of possible people they could employ, and then the identity is revealed. However, the problem uh, with this is that there is still uh, corruption going on. Um, it seems to be on the level of government uh, officials, whether it's the Israeli government or the Philippine government or both. And in fact, when I confronted the Israeli authorities about it, they admitted as much. They said they heard rumors. No one has come to them with concrete cases, but they said they've heard rumors from both the Philippine side and the Israeli side. Now, from my investigation, I didn't just hear rumors. I have direct evidence of this, both from people in the Philippines who are trying to get in there are and who are being charged these fees and people who are already here who said to me that they paid placement fees as recently as August, September time when they when they came over here. This is after the agreement was both signed, it was signed in 2018, and implemented in June 2021. So it's still going on. And um, what also shocked me with this, with this story is the level of... Um, the level of corruption um, at the governmental level. Um, in 2021, the former head of uh, the Department of Manpower within the Israeli Population and Immigration Authority was charged with taking bribes related to these manpower agencies. In 2008, the former Minister of Labour under Likud was charged with accepting bribes in order to allow agencies to bring in more migrant workers to Israel. And these are the cases that we do know about. So it's and reports that uh, that talk about this talk about a very very strong lobby with manpower agencies and others who are who are trying to prevent further bilateral agreements from happening and try to keep this going on. So it's clearly uh, an issue that demands much much more investigation because no one is looking into this properly. It seems. Listeners, look for the piece in the coming days, as I said, and it's well worth the read. Thank you, Jeremy and Ina, for joining me today. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.